Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode, we present a saga, talk about its themes and characters, then judge its finest moments at the Saga Thing. And this time, everyone, this time we're tackling one of the big ones. Yeah, thanks to an overwhelming vote in our last survey, we're going to be spending the next few months on a quest to review... Ale Saga. This one's a monster. Yes. But it's been nearly two years since we did Njal Saga, and I think we've more or less recovered. I feel good. Speak for yourself. <laughs> no, I'm ready for this, and I, I generally do. But this is yeah. this is an intimidating saga to try to encompass for us uh, for reasons that actually go beyond length. It's not the length oh, that bothers absolutely. Me. No, I'm not all that concerned about the length. No, you're not? You should yeah. be. You should be well, no, we survived Njal Saga, which isn't a t-shirt, probably should be. It should be. We should have it on the front, I survived Njal Saga, <laughs> and I liked it on the back. Unlike anyone in Njal's family. <laughs> no, this is like driving at night, Andy. I mean, you can only see as far as the headlights, but you can get all the way home that way. As long as we keep going, we'll be okay. Is that a bit of uh, sage advice from your cocktail napkin collection? <laughs> hey, my reading preferences are none of your concern. Uh-huh. Uh, it's actually a bit of writing advice from Anne Lamott, but it's a, it's good all-around life advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, the point I was making is that the intimidating thing about Ale Saga is the mountain of work that's already been done on this yeah, story. that's the thing. Ale is the only saga that can rival Njal for the sheer volume of critical attention it's received. All true, but it's never had to deal with us before. Ah, uh-huh. All right, I'm feeling confident. Uh, uh-huh. Let's light this powder keg. Let's get it started. All right, press the button. Our saga begins two generations before Eil Skattagrimsson is born. His grandfather Kveldolf enjoys a comfortable life as a farmer in Norway with his wife, Saldjörg. Together they have two sons. The elder one is named Thorolf, an attractive and highly accomplished man. The younger boy is called Grimm, a swarthy and ugly figure who makes up for his lack of social skills with a talent for wood and ironworking. Not far from Kveldolf's happy farm lives his good friend and father-in-law Kari, along with his two sons, Ivan Lam and Orvir Hump. The two families are inseparable, getting along well and enjoying the fruits of their labors, raiding, fishing, and building. Nothing could come between them, or so it would seem. Meanwhile, in Westfold, a young upstart king named Harald is vowed to neither cut nor comb his hair until he has unified all of Norway under his rule. As his tangled locks grow, so too does his power. Before long, he's claimed Opland, the Trondheim district, Nomdal province, and Halogaland. It isn't long before the peaceful farm of Kveldolf and his sons is visited by men seeking to gather forces to stop Harald's progress. But Kveldolf has a feeling that young Harald's good fortune can't be beat. Will he join the ranks of the Norwegian resistance, or will he join King Harald on his mission to subjugate all of Norway? Will Kveldolf and Kauri's family see eye to eye on the issue of Harold's rise, or will a friction between them erupt into flames? And do you think Thorolf likes me? He's so handsome, I bet he doesn't. All that and more in the thrilling introduction to Ale's Saga, part one. So, the obvious thing missing from that summary, Andy, was anything about Ale Scala Grimson. Well, yeah, this is one of those sagas. I mean, we're going to get a lot of story about the immediate ancestors of our protagonist before he finally appears in the narrative, and it's going to take a while. Yeah, 
a lot. I mean, we're going to need multiple episodes to even get to Ale. Mm-hmm. Uh, this saga has 90 chapters, Andy, and Ale doesn't turn up until chapter 31. Yes, and if we do the rate of chapters we're doing this time, uh, <laughs> it's going to be a long time before we see him. It's, I, I anticipate him showing up in episode four. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we we did. It, so this, this isn't too daunting, though. We faced something similar in Greta's saga and Njal's saga, and even actually in Flo Amana's saga. They'd like to delay mm. the delivery of the protagonist. Yeah. I think the Nyal saga comparison is particularly apt. Uh, back when we were reviewing Nyal, Andy, do you remember the endless conversations about whether Nyal was one saga or two? Or three or four. Yes, uh, I remember. Yes. We did that with the uh, Greta saga, too. Mm-hmm. That kind of that kind of discussion leaves a mark. And I think <laughs> I know where you're headed with this with uh, Ale Saga. Yeah. Now, there's a case made by a few scholars that the first section of the saga, the first 20-odd chapters or so, is so different in style and construction that it might indicate a separate text. Now, that's the opening section we're talking about, and it focuses mostly mm-hmm. on the career of Eil's uncle, Thorolf Kveldolfsson. Right. So, a few readers have said that the Thorolf section is much more effectively plotted and told than the actual Eil part of Eil's saga. Mm. Uh, Theodore M. Anderson argues that the ale section is too varied in subject, stretches over too much time and too many locations, and generally lacks focus. And those are exactly the points where Thorolf's story is strongest. It's a mm-hmm. tightly told narrative with a very clear arc and really good control over its story. True, but I'm not done. W.H. Vote went so far as to argue that the two sections cannot, cannot, Andy, have been by the same author. Mm. See, now that's a big claim mm-hmm. because there's a pretty strong consensus out there that this saga was actually written by Snorri Sturluson in the... Yeah, the infamous Snorri Sturluson. Infamous. Yes, thank you. I'm sure that's going to get very old very fast <laughs> with Ale Saga. <laughs> but as I was saying, uh, many people believe that Ale Saga was actually written by the infamous Snorri Sturluson mm-hmm. in the 13th century. Yeah. And we'll be returning to this authorship issue a fair amount, I'm sure. I think so. Uh but I'll, I'll save Vote's full argument for a couple of episodes from now when we get to the split between the two sections. Uh, in the meantime, anyone who's interested in the formal elements of Ale Saga can get an overview of all this. There's a couple of essays. Uh, Torfi Tulinius did an essay, The Construction of Ale Saga, and Svonilde Oskarsdottir, uh, Ale Strikes Again. Uh, both of those essays are in an excellent collection called Ale the Viking Poet. Mm. Yeah, I think we should, for this one, just like with uh, Njal Saga, have an evolving list of recommended readings on our website. Yeah, we'll have to. Uh, so yeah. you have to go to our, our website, uh, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com, and we'll start to put together a bibliography for you guys um, that'll go with all these episodes. Um, and if we yeah. forget something that we mentioned, please just contact me and remind me, and I'll get it up there. So leaving aside the few scholars who complain about the sprawling narrative structure... Readers are usually big fans of Ale Saga, and rightly so. Whether they're scholars, <laughs> students, or saga enthusiasts, everyone loves this yeah, one. You sound like a man with a couple of brief quotes ready to go. I am. I am. Well, thank you for noticing. Let's see. Uh, <laughs> well, Bjarni Einarsson calls Ale Saga a monument, and Ooh. Ale himself is the paragon of the old world heathen hero and scald. Okay. Uh-huh. That's not a bad reputation to carry around, is it? <laughs> Stefan Einerson applauds the author's skill in combining rich source material, local traditions of the best kind, Ailes' oh, verses, well. and other written works into a masterpiece of medieval scholarship and art. Now that's high praise. Look at this. I mean, monuments, masterpieces. Uh-huh. People are pretty free with the praise when it comes to this saga. Oh, yes. Margaret Clooney's Ross calls Ale an outlier among the warrior poet sagas, but she means that mm-hmm. as a compliment. 
Right. And she especially approves of how Ale's poetry carries several intertwined themes central to the saga's presentation of its titular character. I mean, what can I say? I agree with these people. We're in for a treat reading this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, really, an, an occasional messiness of the narrative is the only major criticism people bring to bear. And some even see that as a, as a kind of positive. So uh, Jesse Bayok, for example, calls this saga wide-ranging and multifaceted. So true. And that's a very nice way, though, of saying occasionally messy. But wide-ranging? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he also says the text is marked by a literary inventiveness that can obscure its socio-historical depth. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. So there's going to be a lot going on beneath the surface of the saga. Yeah, which is saying something because there's a hell of a lot happening on the surface. That's right. And uh, we're not done with uh, quotes of praise, John. Uh, oh, we're not? I've got, you know, <laughs> Carry on. I've got a little collection here that I picked up at Kalamazoo a, a couple years back. And it's got just a you know like a collection of essays on Ale Saga. I'm just going to mm-hmm. read you a couple of the first lines of some of these essays. All right, all right. Carry on. Lightning round. John Hines from Kingship and Ale Saga says, "Ale Saga is a saga that is both rich and clearly structured." There you go, like a good cake. I'm going to skip ahead to uh, Allison mm-hmm. Findlay now, who says, "Ale Saga is the most distinguished member of a group among the sagas of Icelanders known as the poets or skald sagas. Most mm. distinguished." That's right. Mm. Dress to impress. And then I'll jump ahead to Carolyn Larrington, Ale's longer poems. Well, this first line is really more a quote from Gabriel Turville Peter. But but through Turville Peter's quote, she opens by acknowledging Ale Scott the Grimson as the greatest of all the schools. Wow. Mm. That's big words. So, everyone, you're in for a treat. If you haven't read the saga, <laughs> run out and get yourself a copy. Absolutely. It's fantastic. We should, everyone loves we it. We should say offhand that uh, uh, we're going to be using the Bernard Scudder translation. For the most part. That's right. Uh, but occasionally, uh, I've done some work on Ale Saga, and I'll occasionally uh, want to throw in my sort of version of translations of things when I think that's an appropriate thing to bring in. But we'll be mostly talking about Bernard Scudder. I think we both have uh, um, the original, we have editions of the original oh, sure. Old Norse. Yeah. So we can play with that as we go um, where necessary. Um, but what about, uh, since we're talking about critics, John, mm-hmm. what about our old friend Jonas Christensen? Oh, he, he have he's on board with the ale train as well. Uh, mm. The story, he says, is full of brightly charged drama, contrasting characters, spirited oratory, and moments of savage barbarity. Wow. And in the midst of all this, Ale himself is portrayed with a spectacular grandeur, which makes him unrivaled among all the great men in the sagas of Icelanders. Wow. And that, Andy, is probably the greatest praise Christensen offers about any saga. So with all that high praise, I mean, mm-hmm. that, that leads me to believe, John, that this is going to be our second perfect 20 in the I final mean, rating section. There's a, there's a very good chance. Uh, or you know, maybe not if to we tip like our hand it, too early, but well, what what if what do we do, John? If if we like it better than y'all saga, I mean, that's could all right. we give it like a a twenty one? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're not going to break our system. Uh, no, I think my, uh, my final rating goes to eleven. Goes to eleven. It's, it's just one it's, more. It's it's one greater. <laughs> uh, all right, um, I'm in. Mm-hmm. I'm convinced. I want to start this this extravagant and <laughs> this adventure this adventure let's uh let's get our our horses packed and uh hit the road <laughs> i think you put packs on the horses you know <laughs> uh, now, we shouldn't be too hasty andy no let's be hasty that's what this is all about <laughs> it's time uh-huh. to get this thing underway 
Oh, I see that. Uh, no, before uh, we do, there is the small matter of our Robin Kills measurement. Ooh, yes. Now, okay. Now you got me all riled up and I forgot. All right. Lay it on me. How many Robin Kills is this? Two, three, well, four? Uh-huh. No. As people can probably guess from all this buildup, Ale Saga is one of the beefier sagas. Mm-hmm. Uh, although it's actually still a far cry from Yale Saga. It tips the scales at 65,626 words, or about 7.2 Robin Kills. Ooh. I'm actually surprised it's not longer. I mean, mm. this it's a meaty saga. It feels like a saga you can get lost in. That's not as many as I would have thought. Well, get your breadcrumbs, Hansel, and let's get lost. Part one. Strange branches on the family tree. So, as we do so often in the sagas, we begin ale with a family tree. But uh, this tree is a little atypical. It's a typical beginning. That's atypical. Mm-hmm. It's different, definitely unique. Actually, at first glance, everything seems fine. <laughs> uh, we're, <laughs> we're introduced to Ulf Bjalfason and Kari of Burl, who are friends and partners in a Viking ship. Ulf is single, Kari is a family man with two sons named Evan Lam and Olvir Hump, and a daughter named Salbjörg. Mm-hmm. After many years of successful raiding, the two men retire to their farms, at which point Ulf marries Kari's beautiful and firm-minded daughter, Salbjörg. I'm glad you said mind. I thought you were going to go another direction there. Now, now. Uh, both men are successful farmers, and Ulf and Salbjörg raise two sons of their own, Thorolf and Grimm. See, as saga introductions go, that's not bad at all. I thought the uh, genealogy would go on a lot a lot further, uh-huh. but uh, yeah. There's only one real family line to keep track of right now, and it's pretty straightforward. So uh, what's the catch? Well, let's see. Uh, first of all, Kari is a berserk. Well, that happens. Uh, which is only ever brought up as a sort of footnote to his character. Um, we're also told that he's a man of high birth with the strength and courage to perform great deeds. See, that actually sounds pretty good, which... Mm-hmm is odd because berserks are usually treated as sort of undesirable types in the sagas. Uh-huh. Yeah, we've only seen one or two berserks who are from good families. Uh, and when we do see that, well, well going to keep usually talking they're, you... <laughs> they're not from any family at all. Uh, well, they're from families, Andy. I mean, this is just a bird and bees thing. Uh, not not narratively, they're not. Uh, they show up in the story with names like Ronvid the Unruly or Halle from Sweden or Ljot the Pale, and they terrorize people. Mm-hmm. They're terrible men. They don't get the family tree that marks out a person of consequence in the sagas. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, actually, I was just going to say that when they that when they are from decent families, there's usually a bit of shame attached to the berserker label. Mm-hmm. Sure. Like, uh, like what's his name from uh, Vatnsdal saga? Mm-hmm. Yes. Thorir. Thor Goatley. Thor, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, that's the one I was thinking of, too. But there's no stigma here. right? Uh, Kari's got kids also, which is a bit unusual for a berserk. He's got I wonder t- if Thorir Goatleg has any kids. Uh, no, he adopts. Remember, he adopts oh, Thorkel Scratches. Kid, Goatleg? Kid? Get it? Oh, yeah. I see. Bad joke. It's, uh, but I appreciate I, you calling my attention to it. Uh, I apologize. I, I interrupted you, you in the, the scene of the accident and uh, pointing it out to me. <laughs> you were right in the middle of a good point and I had to like throw in <laughs> That's quite all right. wrench into the works. Uh, my point is just that Kari that. is a family man with multiple kids. Right? This is unusual mm-hmm. for a berserk. Thor, remember, adopted his child, yes. uh, as we said. Uh, so... Kari's got two sons, Olver and Avend, and uh, then he's got also Salbjörg, his daughter. That's right. And these sons are going to be important later. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope that everyone's mapping this out for themselves. Yes. Uh, kind of important. Um, 
Um, I know we haven't said anything about it yet, but uh, are you going to at some point talk about Olvir Hump? Do we have to wait all the way until next year when you do uh, nicknames to find out about what's going on there? <laughs> uh, no, we'll talk about him. We'll talk about him a little bit later in the story. Excellent. Yeah, because I almost feel like you need to have like a nicknames, a mini nickname section each episode <laughs> just to make sure that we don't have a whole episode. Right, we don't lose track of them later on because there's a lot Would of that be so here. bad Andy wouldn't we all enjoy a chance to sit back open a beer and listen to a nice 45 minute discussion of nicknames just enough time for three or four nicknames sounds good delightful <laughs> all right yeah so um so so that's the what we've covered so far is Solbjorg's side of the family mm-hmm. we've got a berserk father a couple of brothers um what about Ulf because I feel like having read the saga before Ulf is kind of important. Yeah, well, there are a few things we need to know about Ulf. First of all, if it isn't already obvious, Ulf and Solbjorg are going to be Eil's paternal grandparents, right? So we need to focus on these guys. Second of all, Ulf's a shapeshifter. Uh, hold on now. Wait a uh-huh. minute. What? You can't, I mean, that's not a logical progression at all. You just jump <laughs> right to the shapeshifting. Who goes from, uh, here's Grandpa Ulf and Grandma Solbjorg and the story of how they met to, oh, he turns into a werewolf a few times a month. Yeah. Just, you know, FYI. <laughs> He's not really a werewolf, though. He's just a shapeshifter, or so yeah, no. people think he is. It's a rumor. Right, right. He's a shapeshifter, and technically he's rumored to be a shapeshifter. That's right. But it does sound a lot like lycanthropy. I mean, does it? Yes. They talk about him getting grumpy at night. Does he really turn into a werewolf? Well, Do we see him I mean, change? No, 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 no. Absolutely. It's a rumor, right? Uh, but it yeah. does happen at night, right? During the daytime, Ulf is a garrulous farmer who gets on well with his neighbors and gives good advice when asked. Mm-hmm. But toward evening, he grows bad-tempered and makes a point of always going to bed early. Listen, John, you're the nickname guy. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff you're talking about, that's all circumstantial. That's not – he's just getting grumpy at night and you're suddenly saying that he's turning into a, a werewolf? I mean, but what do his and neighbors call it? him since we're talking about nicknames? Uh-huh. All right. But it's, it's enough. Whatever it is, like you – the uh-huh. neighbors think that this grumpiness is enough to call him Quelldulf, which means Night Ulf or Night Wolf. Right. Like Marie de France's Bisclavray, right? Because um Because he's a knight who turns into a wolf. <laughs> so doesn't quite work. Yeah, by the way, if anyone's looking for a great werewolf story, um I'll be teaching it and talking about it uh next week. So uh So come they should by enroll and, in your class? Yeah, just enroll you can just show up and I'll, I'll be talking about Bisclavray and Lumball. All I'm pretty sure week. we're past the ad drop, but okay. Come on by. <laughs> but yes, Kveldolf. Known as the Night right. Wolf, which is a, right. pretty, uh, a pretty cool nickname. Right. So, uh, Ale's grandfather has the same name as an 80s action show. Or wait, is that, that true? Is that Airwolf? There was Airwolf, it? Yes, it was Airwolf. <laughs> not, not Night Wolf, but that uh-huh. would be cool. I would watch Night Wolf. Um, so, say what you want about Kveldolf. There's, mm-hmm. there's even more going on with him than just a little bit of lycanthropy. You know, I had lycanthropy once, but oh, John, uh, please. Well, it turned out to be a lousy setup for a joke, so I got rid of it. Uh, <sighs> I, I do want to emphasize, as you said before, this is only a rumor about Kveldolf. Right? We never uh-huh. see any direct evidence he can turn into a wolf. Uh, I mean, we know he's a bit of a berserk himself because we'll see that later. But the werewolf thing is just gossip. Sure. I mean, what I what I mean is, there's more going on in this family than just the tendency to kill chickens and howl at the moon. <laughs> That's already That's a I mean. lot, but go on. 
Well, Kveldulf's mother, Halbera, is the daughter of Ulf the Fearless, mm-hmm. nicknames. Uh, that's also kind of a berserkery name, the Fearless, right? Yeah. But Halbera has a brother, Halbjorn Ulfsen, better known as Halbjorn Half Troll. And John, okay. I don't know if you uh, uh-huh. read the footnote on this one. <laughs> but if you uh, go into the textual apparatus yeah. of the Scudder translation and uh, look at footnote number two, you'll see that it says Half Troll, mm-hmm. i.e., the offspring of a troll and a human being, which I'm so glad they put that in there. It clears it right up for me. Right. I, I would have never guessed. Right. So as a modern reader, we probably have a few questions at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for one, if Halbjorn is a half troll, that suggests a bit of human troll aboinkin, doesn't mm-hmm. it? A naughty coupling if ever there was one. <laughs> right. See, I guess my first question is kind of similar. I'm thinking about what trolls are in this context. Yeah. Like, what does it mean to have a trollish bloodline in the family? Well, and while we're on that subject, how does a saga audience envision a troll-human union? Oh, I don't. I don't think we want to envision it. <laughs> not that. Yeah, I'm not talking about how they how they consummate the marriage or or the the, the relationship. Thank God. But uh, <laughs> but we have at least encountered some human giant relationships in our readings, right? Uh, the first that comes to mind for me is uh, Bua Andersen hooking up with that giantess Frith Dolfristalter in uh, in Kjellnessinga saga. Mm-hmm. Now I know she's a giantess, but that line between troll and giant is often a hazy one. Yeah. Um, although I, I should say I, I do think that this this half troll name isn't a compliment. So it probably does suggest a human hooking up with a more traditional troll. I'm thinking. I'm thinking more about um, uh, what's his name, the uh, the Thotter, uh, Jokel Buisson. Yeah, uh, he ends up partnering up with that troll woman. True, but but they're just friends, and Frith and Bua do have a child together. Yeah, uh, which suggests that sometimes the human and giant or troll bloodlines do intersect. Right. Uh, but we're talking about something that kind of mat- mixes up history and literature here, yeah. right? So you've got a figure known from multiple sources, Halbjorn Half-Troll, who probably has an historical referent. Uh, but all of the explanations for how you end up with a name like Half-Troll end up relying on literary anecdotes. Yes. Right. So the question that becomes interesting to me is how do we get to a name like Half-Troll for an historical figure – does it merely refer to physical qualities, mm-hmm. right, appearance? Uh, does it refer to uh, a people, right? There's some association of like this half troll thing or trollish blood with northern laps right. uh, across the top of Scandinavia. Uh, it's it's interesting. What does it mean to have that trollish line in the family? Uh, and again, how does that – where do we – meet that point where history and literature uh, connect. That's right. And and I think what some of what you're getting at there is, you know, when people read that name Half-Troll in this saga, uh, what is it saying about Halbjorn or his family, right? Right. So, I mean, it's a legit question, right? It's because we've seen other sagas use that idea uh, of sex with a troll as an insult. Right. Right. The people who are, who, people who sleep with trolls, usually they're feminized in that situation. Men are feminized when they're with trolls. Uh, and that's an insult. But half troll, I think, probably isn't meant literally. Right? It's a manner of description. Uh, as I mentioned a minute ago, it might indicate specific northern ethnicities in Halbera's family. Uh, we don't know for sure. Sure, or maybe he's just kind of ugly. You know? Right? Uh, yeah, the, a a person of trollish mane. Yeah. But uh, so there's a lot tied up in depictions of trolls in Icelandic literature, and we're going to be talking about that in a lot of detail over the course of the saga, actually. Yeah. But uh, we're getting a little off track already here, and we should. Uh, no, no, I think we're merely track, track adjacent. adjacent uh, huh? The the point is that Halbera and Bjarni 
and their son Ulf and his wife Salbjörg collectively make for a unique set of genetic circumstances. Mm -hmm. This family has berserk blood, shapeshifter blood, troll blood, and a poetic streak. (laughs) And as we go forward, all of this is going to inform the characters of Eil and his brother Thorolf when we eventually get around to meeting them. Right. Uh, Which makes for a really cool subplot as we go forward in this saga. Right, we're watching as the story of those different genetic combinations play out in the generations of the family. But we're getting more than a little ahead of ourselves here. First, we have to tell the stories of this generation before we can ever get to Thorolf and Eil. All right. All right. To be continued on that mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, so at first, there doesn't seem to be a lot to tell about this family. Uh, Kveldulf and Salbjörg are comfortably settled on their farm and raising their boys, Thorolf and Grimm. Thorolf is a handsome lad, outgoing, popular, physically gifted. And Grimm... Well, <laughs> well, for starters, he's none of those things. He's yeah. broad rather than tall, bald uh, rather than a beautiful head of uh, blonde hair. Mm-hmm. He's introverted rather than uh, outgoing, somewhat sour, and uh, rather unattractive. Mm-hmm. People end up calling him Scott Grim or Skullgrim because the bones of his face are so prominent. Well, or because he's a baldy. Yes, or that, and I think, uh, or both for that matter, but I, I tend to right. think of him as being bald more than anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the brothers are studying contrasts, right? And that's also a pattern we're going to see repeated in the family. Yes. Uh, much, much later in the saga, the author tells us that some of the best looking people in Iceland come from this family line, even though the majority of the family is remarkably yes. ugly. And that contrast is more than skin deep because Thorolf's a people person and a bit of a dandy. The good mm-hmm. opinion of important men matters to him in a way that it simply doesn't matter to his father and brother. I think it's a nice way of putting yeah. it. So now that we've set everybody up and everyone's got their charts in front of them of who's related to who mm-hmm. uh, and what quality everyone is, uh, what's next? What are we? Where are we headed now? Well, hang on. There's still one more piece of the character introductions to talk about. Solbjörg's brothers, Avind and Olver. Ah, Avind Lamb, Olver Hump. Mm-hmm. Yes, we already said that they're going to be important later, so... Yeah, but later is now. See, I feel like you're trying to draw me into a Spaceballs thing now. Is that, is that what no, you're No, I just want to talk about two guys named Avon Lamb and Thor Oliver Hump. I see. Indulge in your obsession with nicknames. Go ahead. No, no. I, no, no. Well, I mean, not only. Uh, Oliver and Avon are going to play a major role in the early part of this saga. Sure. For now, though, we should just say that Avond is an adventure and Olver is a Viking and a scald. He's a court poet. Right. That's a skill set that we're going to see again in his great nephew, Ael Scott Grimson. Uh, oh, and Olver's nickname, uh, Hnufa, is often translated as hump in English, but it probably means something completely different. See, don't just drop that in. you got to follow that up. Well, I mean, it's going to be a long time before we get to Final Judgment That's for this saga. That's what I'm saying. Andy. So come on. I don't want to leave people with a misunderstanding of Olver's name for this entire time. Exactly. Uh, Vigvison suggests that describes a facial injury or perhaps a snub nose. What? Uh, that Hnufa uh, refers to uh, like a little hump in the nose. Oh. Uh, not to right, not to a hump on his back. Uh, but again, we'll we'll get to that in more detail in the future. But, Will we? Hmm. Well, so know. why are you bringing up these guys right now? What are we going to? Well, because they're going into business with their nephew. I see. Yes. So yeah, this first chapter covers a lot of ground time wise. Uh, so Kveldolf's son Thorolf is now twenty and takes a ship out raiding. His uncles Olver and Avon come with him, and they have several successful years of raiding. Everything's going right. beautifully. Right, so this is a partnership of the sons of Kari and Kvildolf. 
It's nice to see the kids keeping up the family business. That's right. And business is good. I actually like mm-hmm. it. That there's a moment in the, the kind of intro here where they say, back in those days, raiding was so easy. Right. <laughs> right. There weren't Coast Guards everywhere waiting to yeah, kill. Yeah, exactly. You just kind of go find a church and uh, take whatever you want. Right. Shake it until the money falls out. That's right. Uh, and at the end of each year, they uh, come home, divide the plunder equally among them, and spend their winters at home in Norway. Until one fateful year when the partners attend an autumn feast in the Gaular district. Ah, yes, the Gaular feast, where the air is crisp, the chieftains are generous, and the thoughts of a middle-aged seafarer turn to love. That's right. Olver Hump, longtime bachelor and Viking about town, is smitten. Ah, delightful. Good for him. Who's the lucky lady? Well, it's a proud earl's daughter named Solvig the Fair. Andy, do you do, have any Wait, wait, I'm going of- to stop you right there. Yeah. Of course I know who Solveig is. Were you going to ask me if I knew who Solveig is? Because I feel like that's what you're going to yes. do. Yes. Yeah, then I'm going to stop you right there because Solveig <laughs> is the daughter of Atli the Slender. Yep. We talked about this story once before in Floamana Saga. I believe that's mm-hmm. what it was. It was, yeah. Uh, it wasn't all that long ago. It was very uh, We recently. talked about this. Yeah, I know. But we've tried, I think we've tried to erase Floamana Saga from our memories as much as possible. Uh, yeah, we talked about it only in passing. Uh, what happens is that Solvig's father and brothers object to Olver's attentions to his daughter. Now, people might remember this family. Solvig's brothers are Halstein, Herstein, and Holmstein, the daughters of Earl Atli the Slender that kind of took up the beginning of Floamana Saga. So go back and listen there. to episode one. For the record, they are, in fact, the sons of Earl Atlee the Slender. That's what I said. Not the, the, not the daughters. Of course, the sons. <laughs> I know it as well uh, now, as everyone else. Right, of course. Uh, these are the brothers from the early part of Floamana. Yeah. Uh, Herstein and Holmstein got killed in a feud over a different marriage offer. Uh, and their brother Halstein moved to Iceland and eventually became the great-grandfather of Thorgil's Skarleg Stepson. The great Thorgil's Skarleg Stepson. Uh, but so Olvir, so Olvir wants to marry their sister, but they and their mm-hmm. dad refuse the match. Anyone ask Solvig about this? Yeah, uh, not too concerned about that. The author doesn't mm-hmm. mention it either way. Uh, but the entire family thinks that Olvir is not from a good enough family to marry into theirs. And it's mm-hmm. not said that Solvig feels any differently about it. Right. And what I wonder is whether or not the fact that Olvir is the son of a berserk factors into this at all. Mm, interesting. Right. We, we, it's one of those things that we've seen before, right? People don't want berserk bloodlines in the family. Yeah, it's bad blood. Uh, and so I wonder if that's any anything to do with why they turn him down. All we can say for sure is that Olvir takes the rejection very badly. He pines after Solvig, and apparently for a long time. Eventually, he becomes so downhearted that he gives up the Viking lifestyle and stays home to mope. He just doesn't have the energy to kill anymore. No, no. Uh, Avon and Thorolf, however, continue sailing together. So this is another quality in this family that we're going to see. Uh, which part? Actually, the, the overcome by emotions part. Like he just, Oh, right, he yes. Uh, he can't yeah. move on. Yeah, and even more so, the unwillingness of Olvir, Grimm, or Ale to hide behind a facade of stoicism. Yeah. Right. When something's upsetting these guys, people know about it. Oh, they just pout at home endlessly. <laughs> all right. Uh, so I think the families are all set up more or less. Mm-hmm. Uh, now what we need is a bit of historical context and maybe maybe an inciting incident to get things going. Oh. Yes. Uh, I'm uh, familiar with Freytag's uh, uh, <laughs> pyramid. Uh, tell me, John, what is our inciting incident? Well... Part 2. The Rise of Harold Fairhair. Oh, this again. Although, we haven't... Yeah. Uh, 
We haven't actually mm-hmm. talked about Harold Fairhair in a little while. Yeah, but it comes up a lot, man. Harold rises more often than the Mary Ellen Carter. That's a terrible one. That's Thank terrible. You. But it's true. It's hard to avoid the story of Harold's conquest of Norway in any of the more epic sagas. Uh-huh. Especially in Ale Saga, because yeah. Ale's family is destined to spend several generations locked in a duel of wits with the Norwegian kings. A duel of wits? That makes it all sound so crafty. Well, it does get a bit crafty. Uh, But first, we have to set this up. We actually get a lot of detail about Harold's rise in this saga. Uh, Mm -hmm. So much so that for a little while, it's possible to lose sight of who this saga is actually supposed to be about. Well, I mean, there might be a good reason for that. We haven't really discussed it yet, but you did mention earlier that Snorri Sturluson is widely considered likely to have been the author of Ale Saga. <laughs> yeah, you like the way we keep backing off of certainty on this yeah, one? Yeah, I mean, who knows? But the one thing we know about Snorri is that... Well, is that he was infamous. Is that he wrote about Norwegian kings. I <laughs> You're right, that isn't going to get tiresome at all. <laughs> this is the same guy who wrote the Heimskringla, the history of the kings of Norway. And there's an entire short saga in Heimskringla on our man, Harold Fairhair. Well, this is something we'll be talking about now and then throughout these AL episodes. We haven't really had a chance for a good authorship argument. Because up till now, we've been dealing almost exclusively with anonymous authors. Not this time, though. There's, like I said, I think earlier, there's pretty close to universal agreement about Snorri's authorship. Yeah, pretty close. But that only counts in pretty horseshoes and pretty hand grenades. Mm-hmm. It's it's fairly universal. Um, an incomplete list of the scholars who agree about the likelihood of Snorri's authorship would include uh, Bjorn Olsen, uh, Sigurdur Nordahl, Ralph West, uh, Bjarni Anderson, uh, Torfi Tolinius, Peter Hallberg. Uh, Hallberg did a linguistic study of unusual words in Ale Saga, uh, and the other works, and he compared it to the other works of Snorri. Uh, and West did one on the common words of Ale Saga, and both came to the same conclusion. Snorri is absolutely the author. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, Einerson is definitive about the literary relation between Heimskringla and Eilsaga, right? Yes. Okay. But other readers are less convinced. Uh, Jonas Christensen says the texts are definitely linked and that only a genius of the stature of Snorri could have created this saga. Well, well, well. That seems like a clever way to get around having to say that Snorri is the actual author. Doesn't it, though? Yeah. Uh, but I, wait, others, I, I don't. Did, did, did Jonas Christensen do linguistic analyses? Because that's kind of where I would be leaning here. Right. No, I think he's building off of the linguistic analyses done by people like uh, Hallberg and uh, and West. Okay. Uh, but um, uh, people have actually gone so far as to actually argue against this. Margaret Cormack argues that neither Heimskringla nor Eilsaga can definitively be said to be Snorri's work, and can't even be proven to be the work of the same author. Mm. Russell Poole, in his introduction to the 2015 essay collection Ale the Viking Poet, uh, punts on the thing. You know, he just says that when it came <laughs> to the essays in the book, well, we've not sought to establish a party line on the conjecture that Snorri Sturluson was the author of the saga. Right. And the word conjecture there, I think, is a deeply meaningful word. I think it is, uh, yeah. Uh, but ultimately, we're left to say more or less what most people say. It's likely, but not entirely certain. That's a good medievalist phrase to kind of get used to. Yeah. So ultimately, a question like this is unsolvable, right? Yeah. I mean, this is how authorship questions for medieval literature tend to go. We can have enough evidence to be pretty certain about something like ale, but absent a post-it note from Snorri attached to the last page saying, Hey, everybody, remember to sign this saga so everyone will know it was me. In Snorri's specific handwriting, then uh, 
Uh-huh. There's just no way to know for sure. <laughs> uh, Snorri wants everyone to sign it so everyone will know it's him. <laughs> yes. uh, but we were talking about this for a reason. Uh, this saga is about to go down something of a Harold Fairhair rabbit hole. Yeah. Okay, so we... Fairhair rabbit hole, Andy? Nothing? I mean, I'm a little bit nauseated. Uh, does that count? <laughs> I'll take it. Fair air. <laughs> Ugh. All right, so you're—I mean—you're really on a roll tonight. You got <laughs> some. You made a—you might want to drink some more, so we we're, maybe we're both—we're—we're uh, we're both uh, getting he- caught up for Ale Saga in our own way. This is yeah. how I get excited. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so we get the usual story. Harold uh, swears to conquer all Norway, and he will not cut or comb his hair until he does. So, mm-hmm. so for this part of our story, mm-hmm. he's called Harold Tanglehair or Tanglelock. Um, And he does conquer the kings near his own land and then spreads up to Opland and uh, Trondheim. So far, so good. Now, by this point, Harold's already got a reputation preceding him, which is obvious when he goes north to Nomdal, which is one of the smaller Norwegian petty kingdoms. Nomdal is ruled by two brothers named Herlog and Hrolog. And when they hear that Harold's coming, well, Herlog and his 11 champions, they uh, seal themselves up in a burial mount. Wow. Uh, what <laughs> about Hrolog? It's a pretty drastic way to deal with the situation. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> he leaves his brother Hrolog out there. What about him? Well, Hrolog uh, assumes the title of Earl and uh, submits to Harold and becomes the Earl of Nomdal under Harold's control now. Hmm. No, I mean, why didn't he get in the burial mound with his brother? I don't, I, I don't know. I think a little <laughs> philosophical disagreement. Uh, <laughs> Political political tensions in the family, but uh, didn't, no, maybe, well, didn't want to bury maybe, himself alive. Maybe there was no room at uh, the inn. You know, yeah. all, all the men walked in and they said, oh, "There's only room for fourteen in here." Sorry, <laughs> but there's only twelve of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we got two fat guys. That's right. Uh, no, it's an interesting motif. Uh, the entering the mound thing. Uh, yeah. I tend to think of it as referencing like the more prosaic burial mounds. But it has a specific mythical register of its own. It does. And it, it does turn, that kind of thing turns up a fair amount. A mound mm-hmm. or a mountain or hill that's sacred to an area or a family opens with the death of a prominent member of the community to allow him in. Um, usually, usually it's a him. Um, mm-hmm. And it allows him into the community of his ancestors. So it's like a, you know, a, a union between the ancestors and this illustrious right. individual. But right. uh we did see that in a few sagas, I think, going yeah. going all the way back to uh, Erbigdi saga. That was a big deal. Sure, but but it's a much wider set of references than just that. Think of the number of times we've seen people entering burial mounds or mountains for other purposes. Uh, Gretter stealing his short sword from the grave of Car the Old. Uh, mm-hmm. Thorgil Scarleg steps in, accidentally rescuing those Irish women from an underground chamber. Uh, what about uh, Bui Arndridesen, we talked about earlier, uh, when he visits Frid, daughter of the Mountain King? Uh, or Thorsten Bullsleg finding that weird underground kingdom with the brothers locked in combat on a life-size chessboard. Yeah, okay. So no one enjoys a trip down memory lair more than I do, John, but uh, ah, where that. exactly are you going with this? I'm just having a motif index moment. You're just uh, indexing all the times people yeah. went underground. This is a, well, this is clearly a Very big useful. one for saga authors, right? I mean, they make <laughs> varied use of it. It's a threshold yeah. moment. The protagonist crosses from one world into another ah. and either remains or returns with a boon of some kind. A sword, a game board, a hostage, new knowledge, a son, whatever. Okay. All right. Yeah, I like where you're going with that. 
this guy, however, just uh, kind of it's it's his own death or suicide by burial mound, which is right. You know, a nice way to thumb your nose at Harold Tanglehair. I think what he gains there, the boon, if you can call it that, is that he dies a king. I think that's right. exactly right, and that's about uh, to come where off. his brother is subje- subjugated and becomes an earl. That he takes with him the title of king. That is exactly something I want to talk about at some point mm-hmm. along this way. But uh, so, but we were talking about uh, Harold Tanglehair, right? You mean Harold Tanglehair, also known as Harold, the foster son of Dolfrey, king under the mountain, under the mountain. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Point made. Uh, So I've been flapping my gums. Uh, Harold's been having great success everywhere he goes, and people are starting to treat his rise as inevitable. Yes, but not everyone's ready to give up without a fight. Um, Some men are going to bury themselves in mounds, but in Mm -hmm. more, Harold fights King Hunthjof and kills him. But Hunthjof's got a son named Solve Chopper, and I like the origins of his nickname. Yeah, uh, Solve Chopper escapes and begins trying to build up a resistance to Harold. Yeah, Solve's a resourceful guy. Yeah, especially with a meat cleaver. Yeah. <laughs> so we usually talk about the Norwegians facing Harold as having three options. They can submit to Harold's rule, and many men do. Mm-hmm. They can fight and eventually lose. Many men do. <laughs> or they can run away, which well, many men do. But Right. Or they can bury themselves in a mound. <laughs> <laughs> sure, right. Not a popular option, I admit. Yeah, no, but, uh, but there is also another option we should highlight. Mm-hmm. Solvi is going to be one of the people who decide to become an ongoing pain in the royal ass. Hang on, though. You're jumping ahead a little bit. Right now, he's still trying option B. Raise a fighting force and fight back. Which is kind of a problem since his father just lost a kingdom and got killed fighting against Harold. Right. Which means Solvi's got to go around to the neighbor's house and borrow a fresh cup of whoop-ass. More or less, I guess. That's maybe how he introduces himself. <laughs> He races to Southmore where he asks for the help of King Arnvid. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a tough name, Arnvid. You know? Arnvid? Yeah. That's yeah. A, hey, everybody. That's not a cool name. We've that's got, not a tough uh, guy name. Who, who do you got with you? Well, I've got King Arnvid. Right. We've got, oh. we've got uh, Thor, Thorf and Skull Splitter <laughs> and Arnvid. Arnvid. But his, his uh, pocket protector, it really, uh, you know, <laughs> it's very thick. So he's good oh, at... You know, you know, there's at least one Arnvid listening to this right now. I'm I, sorry. I apologize, Arnvid. That, this is please, don't, please don't come beat us up. <laughs> not a popular name in America. Anyways, <laughs> he goes to uh, King Arnvid and he says, This misfortune has befallen us first, but you will face the same choice we had. Either to defend your property and freedom against Harold's aggression, or follow the course of the people of Nomdal, who voluntarily entered servitude and became Harold's slaves. Now, that's a bit harsh on the Nomdal folk. I mean, their king committed moundicide and abandoned them. Moundicide? Damn, that's good, John. <laughs> I, that might be the best thing you've ever said on this podcast, in my opinion. <laughs> that's the best thing? That's a tragic it's a damning statement about everything else i've done on this podcast i don't listen to much of what you say but i caught that <laughs> that's one a fair and i like yeah. it but the point is that it works i mean this 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 whole thing plays out really really nicely and i think it's something that the author is setting up and something I, i'd mm-hmm. like to talk about at some point along the way as would i actually arnvid agrees to muster his men and join with solvi's resistance movement and he sends word to his friend king althbjorn of fjordain who agrees to support solvi's war as well and he then sends messengers to call all the men of Fjordane to join him in the fight. So there's this big right. moment where everyone's gathering to right. fight against Sauron now. himself. 
And that's <laughs> Sauron. And that's how we end up back at Kveldolf's farm. Yes. Kveldolf is one of the men of Fjordane. And so Aldbjorn's messenger arrives at his farm and asks for Kveldolf's support. Well, wait a second. You're skipping the best part here. What's that? The messenger sent around with an actual arrow of war. Oh, yes. An arrow of war, John. <laughs> the messenger has to show up at each farm and present to the landowner mm-hmm. this arrow of war, apparently so that they know he's serious and that it's coming from the king. Yeah, yeah that, that seems like not an entirely reliable system for passing information. Uh, also, does Alvbjorn have a variety of symbolic weapons with different meanings, or is it just arrows all the way? A very I, special arrow. Can he send around to his followers with a small hand axe for skirmishes, <laughs> uh, all the way up to a claymore sword of Armageddon? Can he charge his messengers to carry forth a spiked mace of Yule Party invitation? <laughs> I would have liked this better if you had done some alliteration, but I, I generally speaking, it's not bad. So would you say that Alfbjorn is asking for help or is he demanding it? When someone shows up with this arrow, is it a right. request or is it a, a, you know, you must fulfill your oaths of obligation to me? Right. I think in this situation he's asking. He really isn't in a position to demand anything, which Kveldolf makes clear. Alfbjorn would think it's my duty to go with him if he had to defend Fjordane province. But I don't think it's my duty to go up to north to Moor and fight for other men's land there. Tell your king straight out. While he rushes off to battle, Kveldolf will be staying at home. Hmm. Uh, I've got a feeling Harold Tanglehair has plenty of good fortune in store for him. But Albjorn hasn't got enough to fill the palm of his hand. <laughs> I see he's from Montana. That's right. All right. Big sky uh, country. So I, I have a little problem with what Kveldolf's doing here. Uh-huh. I understand his general motivation. And it comes up mm-hmm. later after, you know, after the fact. <laughs> his motivation's pretty clear. It's to not do a damn thing. <laughs> That's exactly right. And I, I you know, I think this comes up a little bit later, but I'm going to say it now. He's not willing to help. And by not willing to help, mm-hmm. he's contributing to the problem. Absolutely right. Now, I understand he believes that uh, Harold Tanglehair has a lot of luck on his side and is likely mm-hmm. to win these things, but if everyone stays home, then right. the bad guy wins. I think that's exactly the right point. I think we should discuss this later on. Hmm. But for right now, I want to point out that the, the, the thing about Kveldolf is that he's just generally um, a misanthrope, right? He's, yeah. It's not that he's refusing to support uh, Albjorn because he fears Harold. He just doesn't want to help anybody. I don't think that's necessarily the case. He does say, I don't want to help those men because that's their land, not mine. That's part of it. Right. And, but but he also on, says he doesn't believe mm-hmm. that Alvbjorn has the power to beat uh, to, to beat Harold. So right, why bother is, getting involved at all? Right. Which is fairly blunt. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's not being subtle here. No. And the messengers take that message back to Alvbjorn. Uh, and fortunately for Kveldolf, Aldbjorn's too busy preparing for war to come sort Kveldolf out for not supporting him. Right, true. But but this is also an example of something we've said before. Support for one's leaders in this culture is mostly contingent. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not the uh, this is not the comitata situation where right. you, you kind of have to based on your oaths of obligation. Right. It's I think that's exactly choice. the point. Isn't that the point of that arrow of war? Right. It's more of an exhortation yeah. uh, than an obligation. Right. It's... Right, come with me. We will go fight together. It's you're you're trying to raise up your supporters rather That's than right. demand their presence. 
And in this case, you know, by refusing Kveldolf, he probably would face consequences for refusing to support his king, perhaps from the king, but certainly from the social right. world that he lives in. Right. Um, but he is at least able to make that decision and then live with the consequences right. of it. I mean, it's a bit proto-Icelandic, really. It uh, is, yeah. Although, again, if Aldrin survives the upcoming battle, he's likely to want a word with Kveldolf. <laughs> then it's a good thing for Kveldolf that Albjorn is facing Harold. Right. Well, this is actually a pretty stiff test for Harold as well. He's going to be facing three kings at once, and they're nearly as prepared for battle as he is. And that's how it turns out, actually. Harold's mm-hmm. men come south chasing Solvi Chopper and run straight into the combined forces of Solvi, Aldbjorn, and Arnvid. There's a desperate battle there with heavy losses on both sides. Harold loses two of his top supporters, the Earls Ascout and Asbjorn, and his friend Haukon of Laude loses two sons in the fighting as well. But on the other side, King Arnvid and King Alfbjorn are both killed as well. And Solvi Chopper once again survives by fleeing the battle. And note I'm counting here, that's six men. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, that's a nimble fellow, that Solvi. That's twice now he's managed to escape direct battle with Harold. Uh, which means uh, Kveldolf was right about his king's lack of luck. Although he didn't account for Solvi's luck. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we're not given a ton of detail about this battle. In fact, I basically paraphrased, paraphrased the entire description of the battle just now. Yeah, I was thinking that, yeah. And after that, Harold retreats to Trondheim for the winter. Alfbjorn's brother, Vaymund, claims the kingship of Fjordane, but uh, for Vaymund, it's not going to be a long reign. No, definitely not. Um, as, as we said, people are seeing Harold's rise as an inevitability, and so various factions now are starting to act on his behalf. Right. Opportunists, in other words. That's right. Uh, a man named Earl Ronvald tracks Vaymond, who presumably still has that new king smell on him. <laughs> uh, Ronvald attacks a hall where Vaymond is at a feast, and it's a big feast. Uh, there's a brief fight, the hall is set on fire, and King Vaymond and 90 of his men die in the flames. Boom, and just like that, Ale Saga is launched into the upper echelons of our body count. <laughs> it's a longer saga, but anytime uh-huh. you throw 90 men plus the six we counted earlier in the first is, couple chapters, yeah, that's impressive and very useful for our body count. Mm-hmm. It's horrific, yes. It's a burning. <laughs> I don't approve. You shouldn't right. either. But it's a we great put that caveat line. in a little too late. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great stat line for this saga. It does sound like you kind of approve a little. I'm not toasting marshmallows on the flames, but it's an impressive body count nonetheless <laughs> for the first few chapters oh. of this saga. Now, while Vaymond is being turned into a uh, King's Fjord charcoal baquette, uh, oh. Kveldolf... <laughs> Who's insensitive now? <laughs> oh, come on. Uh, Kveldolf, true to his word, he stays home for the entire autumn. Well, he's not the most outgoing person, but he's at least honest and lazy. Yes. Well, not all, not everyone is so fortunate as to spend the crisp fall weather in comfort, though. Over Some of them just has, spend it being crisp. Right. <laughs> being crisp and falling. Um, <laughs> over hump burning people continues. Jokes <laughs> it's a big burn. I mean, how do you fit 90 men in a hall first? I think it's an impressive And then hall. keep them inside while you're trying to burn the place down. You'd think at least a few would get out. I would think so. Maybe, maybe he had 93 men in there and three of them escaped. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, now... Uh, Overhump has been moping for his lost love Solvig Atladar this entire time. And apparently, he's been making himself obnoxious to the family. That is so, so sad. 
I know. Stalking so even existed back in Well, the, the question in, is, is he stalking or is he just, you know, has he been composing love poems? We know he's a poet. I bet he's watching her everywhere. Oh, he's being creepy, so we don't like Olver now? That's my impression of the fellow. Oh, that's a shame. Uh, yeah. All right. So that's it. That's canon now. Olver's a bad guy. <laughs> uh, so this same autumn... Solvig's brothers, Halston, Harrison, and Holmstein Atlason, attack Olver at his home. Good for them. Well, now, we say that. Let's remember that these are the same guys who later on try to kill another family because uh, Harrison is refused a marriage that he wants. So they have a reputation So he for... starts creeping on people later on. That's right. Uh, now, Olver does manage to escape this attack, but he decides that the entire region is just too dangerous for him. What a guy. Trout. Yeah, I mean, he travels north, he meets up with King Harold, and joins him as the king's poet. Oh, that son of a bitch. <laughs> no, no. And that's, that, but it's actually kind of, it, apropos, it's a, a bit mm-hmm. of a family reunion. Yep. Because Kari, Olvir's dad, has already joined Ronvald's forces and is now in service to King Harold as well. Yep. And meanwhile, the Atlasons wander off and get killed and or emigrate to <laughs> Iceland and become family patriarchs in Floamana Saga. Bye, guys. Bon voyage. Watch out for the rocky shores, Halstein. <laughs> See, you do remember Flo Monosaga. I do. Remember, he uh, crashes and you made fun of yeah. him for being a bad captain. Uh-huh. Uh, so things are really coming to a head in Norway now, and uh, people are starting to flee the entire peninsula. There's still a resistance to Harald, and it's growing, but there are also new communities of expat Norwegians popping up all over northern Europe. Like one in Iceland, perhaps. Like that, yeah. yeah. But the author also lists communities in Jampland, Halsingland, the Hebrides, Dublin, Northern Ireland, Normandy, Scotland, the Orkneys, the Shetlands, the Faroe Islands. <sighs> That's a lot of communities, John. Yeah, the diaspora is fully underway at this point. The maps I show my students show exactly that. That's yes. Where did they go? The only thing missing <laughs> right. there is like, well, again, it would be Swedes going there, but it's missing the kind of eastern uh, journeys right. that the Vikings went right. on. But yeah, that's a lot. Um, mm-hmm. You keep saying the author, but we already talked about the likelihood that Snorri Sturluson wrote the saga. And mm-hmm. this attention to detail about the life of Harold Fairhair, that that kind of supports the idea that Snorri might be the author, doesn't it? He's got an interest in Harold. And... Right. Now, I'd say it supports, I mean, I may be doing the same kind of hedge that uh, uh, Christensen pulls. But I'd say it supports the idea that our author is familiar with the same works and sources as Snorri, mm-hmm. might even be familiar with Snorri's saga of Harold Fairhair from the Heimskringla. Whether that means the author is Snorri, that's eh, tricky. I mean, I'll accept it as a hypothesis, but I'm probably going to keep calling him our author. Well, your bets may not have tremendous grounds in general, but that was a beautiful hedge. I enjoyed it. Uh, moving on. Part three, The King's Man. All right, so people are fleeing Norway in huge numbers, but there's still a significant resistance to Harald's expansionism, which means Harald's looking for support from his followers. Well, under Harald, I think it makes sense to call them subjects, doesn't it? Well, yeah, either way, uh, since Veyman was, bo- was burned, uh, Fjordane is part of his land holdings, which means it isn't long before another messenger comes around the farm, this time asking Kveldolf to come support Harald against his enemies. Oh. Kveldolf says he's not interested. And I'm too old for being on fighting ships. I'll stay home and give up serving kings. See, that's not as rude as it could have been, knowing Kveldolf. 
I mean, at least he comes up with a plausible excuse. I just well, a little I, too old for this. Yeah. Now the messenger tries to meet him halfway and suggests that Kvelov's son Grim, who's right there, might go in his place. <laughs> That's not a. Good and if idea. Grim does go, Harold's sure to make him a landowner in his own right. Right. That's a good thing. Yeah. But uh, quick, Grim quickly shuts that down. I just want to say that uh, the author makes a mistake by not really establishing Grimm's character before this. We're told Why that he's that? An, a, he, well. We're told that he's kind of unruly, but that's it. It's just like one mm-hmm. line. Yeah. What we really need to appreciate this scene is to get a sense of who Grimm really is, and we don't. Well, <laughs> I think what we what we get is his um, his truculence, right? Yeah. His his willingness to offend. Um, <laughs> You know, and maybe this is what I think to some degree this is one of those sagas. What's the uh, what's the old line that one of our professors used to quote about Pierce Plowman? No one should ever have to read it for the first time. Yes. Right? Yeah. It's a ale saga. There are things that I think only really come to you on a second or third reading. That's right. Yeah. And this is one of those moments like you don't yeah. really have an idea of how bad it would be for Grimm to go searching right. Harold <laughs> until you get right. this further is a into disastrous idea. But his father definitely has a good sense of it. Right. Uh, and well, and to his credit, Grimm's the one to shut this down. Andy, do you have a voice ready for Grimm? Not really, but I think it'll be similar. It'll be gravelly, similar to what you're working sure. with Peldolf, with because sure. he's the uh, direct uh, yeah. uh, inheritor Don't forget Big that. Sky Country. Right. We're yes. doing, <laughs> we're aiming right. for Montana here. All right. So I'm Grimm this, uh, in this saga. Yep. All right. So, uh, so Grimm says... I don't want to be a landowner. <laughs> okay, now you're just doing now you're just doing sling blade. I just, I blew out my mic on that. <laughs> I don't want to be a landowner while my father's alive. He's my <laughs> superior as long as he lives. <laughs> I, I, Book <laughs> it. That's Scott Legrim's voice from here on. Yeah, it's a uh, that's that is almost exactly halfway in between uh, Christian Bale's Batman and Yoda. <laughs> uh. <laughs> It really is halfway between Batman and Yoda. <laughs> uh, Serving so King Harold, bad will turn out. Consume you, <laughs> death will. So the messenger um, has to go away with that. Report back and say, I don't know if he was doing Batman or Yoda, but he said no. <laughs> uh, so a few months later, Olvira Hump, fellow's brother-in-law, shows up at the farm. And he's serving in Harold's retinue now. Yeah. Uh, Olver tells Kveldolf that Harold was furious when he got Kveldolf's refusal. Essentially, he's been sent with an ultimatum. Kveldolf or his son has to show up in Trondheim to attend on Harold, or there'll be trouble. Now, Kveldolf still wants no part of Harold, but he says, I won't go to meet him. I think this king will not bring my family good fortune. But if Thorolf comes home this summer, it'll be easy to convince him to go and become one of the king's men. So tell him I'll be friendly toward him and encourage others to do so. As far as supporting him goes, I'll maintain the same relationship I had under the last king. And we'll see how the two of us get on together. See, there's a lot to sort out in that speech. And that that just strikes me well, as so Icelandic. Kveldolf yeah, there. doesn't it? I mean, you begin to see why Kveldolf didn't want to get involved with politics, right? Yeah, but this is a little different. Well, it's not really. I mean, Harold's not really asking for support, right? He expects it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a it's, gentle command right here. Yes, it is. But it's still the same sales pitch, and Kveldolf's still not buying in. Yeah, but I still think this is a little bit different. Kveldolf's mm-hmm. refusal to Alvjorn was based on the fact that Alvjorn was going to... F- he was going to go off to fight a battle outside of Fjordane, right? Mm-hmm. 
and that Kvaldolf didn't owe him that kind of service. Like, I'm, I'm loyal to you, but I'm not supposed to go and fight battles on right. other people's lands. Right. But Harold's an over-king, right? Mm-hmm. So his land extends beyond Fjordbane. Uh, and so his definition of Kaldolf's duty to assist him is extended to match. So, like, this, this is a completely yeah. different scenario. Yeah, but that's only a change in things from Harold's point of view. Kveldolf doesn't see their relationship in those terms. Mm, I don't know about that. I mean, he's not even being particularly hostile to Harold, at least not openly. He just doesn't want to get involved in the affairs of kings, he says. Right? This is the excuse he's giving. His claim to be too old for that sort of thing, I mean, it's clearly an excuse, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, his father-in-law, Kari, is currently serving in Harold's retinue. Age ain't nothing but a number, Kveldolf. <laughs> Get on that boat. Well, I mean, I would say, though, there is hostility here. Mm-hmm. Kveldolf, as much as he might acknowledge Harold's position, mm-hmm. he doesn't trust Harold at all. Well, should he? Well... I mean, that's a tricky question, actually. I mean, at this point in the story, there's no particular reason not to trust him. It seems like, and a lot of people in Norway come to this conclusion, if you serve him, things will go well for you. But uh, there's also no reason to trust him. And it seems like Kveldolf has a sense about So you're saying the jury's still out? Even after Harald's killed one king of Fjordane? (laughs) And another has been burned to death to curry favor with Harald? Well, I mean, that's not Harald's fault. He wasn't found next to the burned-out feast hall with a guilty expression or match in his hand. And he did ask nicely if they would join him. (laughs) King's Fjord briquettes. Edges light quickly. (laughs) Uh, No, it's still not a great thing for Harald's reputation in the area, I think. Well, it does show that he's a powerful man and he's very Mm -hmm. lucky, right? But nevertheless, the political reality in Norway now is that Harold's the only game in town, and his power is only growing. Yeah. Or at least that's the case in Fjordane. The subtext of Olvir's speech is that Kveldolf has to either figure out a way to unbend enough to keep Harold happy, or else he has to, like many others, get out of Norway and go find Uh somewhere else to live. Staying at home and leaving off serving kings, that isn't going to fly... When there's an over-king of all Norway looking for evidence that you're on his side, especially when he wants to come and collect taxes from you. Sure, fair enough. And we should also point out that Olvir really did have to intervene to keep Harald from crashing down on Kveldolf like a ton of bricks. Yeah, we do We do get... That's a, that's a weird expression, ton of bricks, isn't what? it? A ton I mean, of a ton bricks. of anything would hit like a ton of anything else, right? That's what a ton is. <laughs> Technically, yes, a ton. Is, I mean, depend. A ton of feathers would right. weigh the right. same as a ton of bricks. I mean, you know, a ton of a ton of blown up balloons would hit the same as a ton of bricks. Exactly, it hit him like a ton of blown up balloons. <laughs> what about a, something? A ton of angry king, because <laughs> Olvir barely manages to soothe Harold, and then only by promising to go and see Kveldolf again and explain that. The situation, the political realities of the situation are much mm-hmm. more drastic than right. Kveldolf may realize. Right, but that's that's not how he phrases it. Well, no, 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 because Kveld, or because Olvir is a poet, he's mm-hmm. good with words unlike me, and he knows <laughs> what Harold wants to hear. What he said was, I'll go see Kveldolf, and he will certainly want to meet you when he learns how important it is to you. So mm-hmm. he's got a bit on the line here now. He stuck his neck out for Kveldolf. Not a good idea. Well, Kveldolf does understand that, I think. I mean, he's clearly making an effort to conciliate here. He's not willing to eat crow by actually going and seeing Harold himself, but he can make these empty promises to talk to his son and speak well of Harold to the neighbors at the next uh, Southern Fjordane block party and barbecue. (laughs) 
Yeah, but he's not actually willing to do that. Well, sure, but I mean, what's said in Fjordane stays in Fjordane. No, no, it doesn't. That's actually a very big problem in this song. <laughs> Olvir goes back to Harold and tells him that Kveldolf will send along his older son when he returns from summer raiding. And so the clock is ticking on all of this. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, when Thorolf does return from raiding, he asks his father what he told Uncle Olvir about Harold's summons when he visited the farm. And Kveldolf says, well, I told him what I was thinking, that I would never join Harold. And nor would you or your brother, if I had any say in the matter. Well, I think we'd end up losing our lives because of that, King. That is quite different from what I foresee, Father. I feel sure I'll earn great honor from him. In fact, I'm determined to go see this King and join him. My goodness, the the dulcet tones of Thorolf Kvelofsson. Well, he is Uh, an adventuring (laughs) man of honor. He's the popular hero to Uh me. He's kind of an upbeat guy, too, ain't he? Well, I mean, again, he's supposed to be outgoing, popular type. He's heroic. That's not all he says, though. He gives quite a long speech singing Harold's praises, uh, which makes it pretty clear he's been talking to various people about the situation. And he's already decided. Of course he has. I mean, Thorolf is going to get on the Harold train before it leaves the station. I mean, this really is quite a speech, and it's it's too long to give in its entirety, but it boils down to a list of the advantages of becoming Harold's man. Mm-hmm. And remember, uh, Thorolf is a guy who likes royalty. He likes yes. the possible uh, popularity. He likes the good things in life. Yeah, he, and maybe he's a little bit of a kiss-ass. Yeah. I don't know. He's got champagne wishes and caviar dreams at Yes, Thorolf. he does, and he knows how to get them. So men in Harold's retinue live better than anyone else. And they enjoy the reputations as men of valor. Harold is a generous friend who offers advancement and power to ambitious young men. And he's a nasty enemy to have. So, as far as Thorolf's concerned, it's better to be allied with him than not, right? Right. right. We should be clear that you're paraphrasing his speech there. Oh, yeah. That's ex- uh, those are his main points. You know, and from his point of view, right, all of that is more or less true. Yeah. The Harold in this saga, to this point has behaved reasonably well toward those who are loyal to him. Mm-hmm. The problem is that Harold is also inconstant, but Thorolf doesn't know that yet. But uh, generous, high-living, and brave? Sure. Absolutely. And hey, it turns out that Kveldolf is right. It is easy, easy to talk Thorolf into joining Harold's household. That's right. As a matter of fact, he talks himself into it. <laughs> yeah, he's a talented young man, Thorolf. Yeah, not especially. He's just a oh. square-jawed extrovert with a winning smile. See, that to me sounds like your your introvert lashing out against an extrovert. Not, I'm not sure I like. Well, that's it. possible. I mean, look, you've seen me in the in the Thorol versus Scott Legrim sweepstakes. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I definitely came down on the uh, Scott Legrim side of the gene pool. That's true, but that uh, doesn't make Thorolf a bad person, and I want to make it very clear. No, Thorolf no. is meant We're, to be a good person in this right. Area. But in this case, he's also reading the zeitgeist of Norway pretty accurately. Yes, he is. The wind is definitely blowing in Harold's direction. Uh, Besides which, Thorolf is a young man with a ship and a taste for travel. He's at the height of his development, and the idea of hunkering down on the family farm for a few months or years or decades to wait out Harold's rule, that doesn't really appeal to him. Mm -hmm. So he ends his long speech with, If you claim to have an intuition, this King Harold will cause us misfortune and become our enemy, why... Why didn't you join the king you had sworn allegiance to and fight Harold? That's a damn good point. (laughs) Being neither his friend nor his enemy seems to me the most dishonorable course of all. 
that's a choice burn. That's got to sting. It it should. And, I, you know, it's pretty rare to see a son mm-hmm. goading his father like this. Usually yeah. this kind of thing works the other way around in the sagas. Or it's yeah. a mother kind of goading the, the, yeah. the son. Well, and Kvaldolf knew this was going to be the case, right? I mean, his foresight isn't quite as magical as Njal Thorgerson or Thorgana. But he's got a bit of that same second sight. Yeah. So he doesn't try to fight the idea. He just says... Well, it's true that Harold will do great harm to my kinsmen, but I have no worries about you not being accepted as their equal if you join King Harold's men. You'll be a match for the best of them in the face of any danger. See, on the one hand, that's very, very sweet, and Kveldolf's just mm-hmm. an old softy of a werewolf in some ways. No, no, we don't know that he's a werewolf, remember? Of course. Well, he's a, an old softy of a reputed werewolf. Um, <laughs> it's very sweet. Um, but mm-hmm. he does he does open that with, it's true that Harold will do great harm to my kinsmen. So he's basically yes. saying, like, he'll probably kill you, but you're going to be accepted yep. into his retinue very well. Oh, you're going to do great. <laughs> you're just the <laughs> Right up guy. until that point, it's going to go really well. Yeah. Uh, and he's he's actually correct. Thorolf has mm-hmm. an impressive career ahead of him as one of Harold's best men. At least for a while. Yeah. And the next section of the saga tells the story of Thorolf's successes as a member of Harold's retinue. And he'll make new friends, rise up in Harold's estimation, and even serve as a prowman in Harold's own ship at the Battle of Harfisfjord. And all that sounds pretty good. But he's also going to learn the value and the danger of his father's final piece of advice. Avoid aiming too high or contending with stronger men than yourself, but never give way to them either. Wait a minute now. Say that again. Yeah, I know. There's a possible contradiction in there, isn't there? <laughs> it's it's not too far off from the advice D'Artagnan gets from his father. Right? Brook no insults from anyone at court. It's almost a guarantee to get an ambitious young man in trouble. Yes, but all of that is for next time. Yeah. Uh, but before, we, uh, before we leave off this keen encounter of our wits, Andy, I wanted to uh, go back to something that's been building over this first section of the saga. Yeah, me too. I actually had something I wanted to bring up, and I'm going to, since oh. I'm talking now, I'm going to bring up the thing I want to talk about. <laughs> oh, look at you. How do you look think about you seizing the microphone? Wow. Yeah, no, I, I, I really think this opening section, um, mm-hmm. there's so much to unpack, and we, we really haven't had an opportunity to do it, nor will we. We'll have to continue trying to trying right. to do so. But this whole opening section sets up a contrast. It's all about contrast, yep. right? And that contrast is set up over the, the, the question of Harold stepping in as over-king or the king mm-hmm. of all Norway. It's a, these, these chapters are so fascinating to read as we see yeah. the arguments from the different sides. There's nothing wrong with Thorolf's argument that, uh, that the king offers great opportunity and the, 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 the potential for advancement for anyone yeah. who, who joins him. But at the same time, you have this other guy. What was the name of the guy that uh, closed himself up in the mountain? Uh, Herlog. Herlog. So King Herlog, he he dies a king, but I think implicit in the speech that is given about him is that mm-hmm. he dies a free man. Yeah. He dies in charge of his own affairs. And that's the thing that Kveldolf is most concerned with as well. Kveldolf's mm-hmm. not interested in the ambitions of other men, the ambitions right. of kings and, and big chieftains in his area. He's interested in his own farm and living his own life the way that he wants to. And right. all of this, John, makes me think of 13th century Iceland when this particular Mm -hmm. text was written. The issues that men in Iceland were dealing with as they were being wooed by the King Hauken IV Mm -hmm. of Norway who wanted control of Iceland. Yep. And he's persuading men 
to join him. And indeed, many men are joining him, including Snorri Sturluson for, for a time. That's right. But or at, at home, least ostensibly joining him. Ostensibly yes. joining him. But again, at times, there are other men who are making the same argument as Kveldolf or mm-hmm. making the same argument as, as Outlaw. Uh, right. choosing to die either fighting, choosing to die um, by uh, burying themselves in a mound symbolically, mm-hmm. I guess you would say, or, <laughs> or or staying home and refusing to join. It's, it's such a fascinating yep. opening to this yep. this story, and it gives us a sense of what this what's really at stake in this in this text. Well, it's so it you get that. Um, I think it's important with a saga like this to understand that what you're seeing is, or what the author is trying to present is, the kinds of decisions that people make when they don't know the outcome. It's very easy as the reader of a history or the reader of a, a, a story to second guess what people are doing, right? Because we know the outcome. We know how it ends. Mm-hmm. And so the the good decisions, the, the heroic decisions are the ones that work out or the ones that result in a sort of, you know, a last blaze of glory. Uh, but those are only things that you can know in retrospect. Yeah. Right? In the moment, confronted with a growing power that you don't know if it'll actually come to full fruition or not. Right. Is it better to resist? Is it better to ally yourself with that new power? Is it best to try to find a third way like Kveldolf does? Uh, what do you do in that moment? And I think that's a, it's an impossible question to answer because the survivors afterwards are the ones who made presumably the correct decisions. Yeah. Or perhaps the heroic dead are the ones who made the correct decisions. But those decisions in the moment are wise or foolish, brave or foolhardy. And you can't know. No. And unfortunately, so many people throughout history have had to make that kind of decision. Right? Absolutely. Um, and that's that. this actually leads me right into what I was, was interested in. Um, it's it's funny that we're both thinking about the same things looking at this. Well, I think when um, you read this opening section, and again, we've mm-hmm. only covered the first six chapters, but the author is working so hard here to not really come down on one side or the other. And I think he does a really great right. job right. of saying, here are the two options. Here mm-hmm. are the positives and the negatives of both sides. And it's really right. left to the reader to decide kind of what you would do. It's a it's a, a real conundrum, if you will. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what, what were well, you going to say about it? Well, and for me, because the problem is that that, that balance creates uh, a story of Harold's rise. that It's, it's believable and it's a little bit frightening. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, at each step of the way, our author makes it clear, I think, that part of what makes Harold's success inevitable is that people believe it. They never organize against him until it's too late. And that's in part because they think it's inevitable that he's going to succeed. And and again, like I said before, that's my problem with Kveldolf is he gives into this prophecy that he has about the whole situation. But in doing so, he helps to make sure that the prophecy comes true. Right. And of course, again, as readers, even in the 13th century, as readers, we know that he's right. Yeah. But his rightness is only proved by the outcome of events in which he has a hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we see Harold picking off one minor king after another, and he succeeds because of people like Kveldolf, right? People who refuse to join in the alliance against him. Those alliances remain impromptu and regional. I mean, and that makes sense, right? The the disunited nature of the Norwegian Peninsula is the point until Harold unites it. Yeah, right. I mean, it's a successful alliance of the Norwegian kings to oppose Harold would kind of prove Harold's point. Yes. That a united Norway is a stronger Norway. That's true. Right. Which in its own way is a frightening idea all by itself, right? That you would have to sacrifice 
the freedom and independence that you value in order to fight off the thing that would take your independence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, but there's also, I think, the mesmeric quality of Harold's dominance, right? People act very quickly as if resistance is doomed. Heroic and manly, perhaps, but doomed. So there's already a wave of emigration out of Norway, even as the resistance is trying to push him back. Mm-hmm. Every one of those ships is filled with enemies Harold doesn't have to fight. The author emphasizes how many ships flee Norway and then follows that up with that long list that we recounted of all the different places that they end up. So we're really being given a sense of the thousands and thousands of people who are fleeing. And only then do we get that sense of the people beginning to turn to Harold's side, the ones who remain behind and turn to him because of that weakening of the opposition. Right. We see how someone like Ronvald attacks and burns King Veyman and 90 men as an act of loyalty to Harold. Harold doesn't even conquer Fjordane, right? Uh, Ronvald's already done it for him. Yeah. Kari then joins Ronvald. Olvir then joins Kari. And then once that sequence of events leads to Harold demanding a show of loyalty from Kveldolf's family, Thorolf joins his uncle and grandfather in Trondheim as Harold's follower. Mm-hmm. It and all feels so inevitable the, as, as you it's, go through it. Feels it feels inevitable. It feels awful, right? This is like this terrible, dirty thing that's dragging you into it. Well, and one of the things that's really troublesome about it is that a lot of the men, especially early on, that he ends mm-hmm. up, that Harold ends up pooling to himself are desperate men, opportunistic men. Yes. And that, to me, taints to some degree, uh, to a large degree for me, uh, <laughs> it taints what Harold's up to. And those yep. men who choose to be with him, um, for me, there, there's something problematic yeah. there. I mean, and I think the out, author's like, invested Olvier, in that. Right. Olvier, who ends up being his core poet, is really, he's a homeless man who was run off for stalking a woman who didn't want him. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, Ronvald is a minor earl who gains prominence by burning a king to death along with 90 of his men. Right? These are not the best and brightest that Norway has to offer, at least not ethically and morally. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're watching a wave of people turning to Harold, right? small people, small-minded people. They make his rise as irresistible as they think it is. It's, it's a frightening bit of subtext about how strong men can behave weakly. And it sets up, I think, the unease with Harold's reign that the author is going to be using as a through line in this entire saga. Yeah. Absolutely. And and again, uh, as a work of literature, it's important to pay attention to the themes that are established in the mm-hmm. kind of the setup to the story as a whole. And I think that yep. these themes, these same things, themes about character, um, about relationship mm-hmm. to royalty, all of that stuff is going to be uh, resonating throughout the whole the whole saga. Mm-hmm. So it's worth paying attention to. It does pay off with Ail's character in particular. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as you suggested earlier, we just gave him this slight hint right now of the kind of resistance that we're going to see from uh, Kveldal's family, right, through Grimm and his kind of shutting down of the messenger's overtures. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's only a subtle hint right now because we don't fully know how that family is going to develop. No. Uh, And so I think there's a very uneasy point at at around this point, point where we're stopping in the saga where it feels like there's just no way to stand against Harold. That's right. And all of this is going to inform the way that A.L. Scott Grimson's character is yes. portrayed in the saga, the way yes. that he's going to interact with the royalty that he encounters mm-hmm. um, throughout. And isn't, so, it, isn't it perhaps even a little bit of why Ale comes across as so heroic, mm. right? That he becomes this sort of this, this embodiment of resistance to the Norwegian authority. Absolutely. 
uh, at a time in the rest of the saga where it feels like nobody can stand against this. That's right. And all of that is going to be worth considering, I think, when we finally mm-hmm. get to the end. And we do need to consider um, the contemporary uh, issues yes. going on yes. when this saga was written. So we, I, I want to yes. talk about the Sturlung Age at some point. But I think we need of the course. whole saga to pass by before we um. can get there. We might need a whole episode <laughs> at the end just for right. kind of like unpacking. Well, Everything. I think there's there's certainly this material. I mean, one thing we could say is that, you know, we could do this episode again and do a completely different reading of this saga and have it hang together. I mean, oh, there's absolutely. so much happening right here. There's so many through lines that we can follow. Yeah. And if uh, we uh, talk along, about this for a while. And if yeah. along the way we are not talking about the things you want us to talk about, well, yeah. again, there, there's so, so much that we could say about yes. this particular saga. Yes. And so uh, um, we're doing our best to balance the things that pop into our minds. So, but yeah. Absolutely. No, I was just going to say, uh, you know, we, we want to hear from people if they have things they want us to discuss. Uh, we could even start answering some questions at the end of these episodes. I think that might be a good be... idea, actually. If uh, people want to send us questions yep. about the previous episode, um, you'd have to do it within a week or two if we're going to keep to our schedule. <laughs> um, but we'll do our best at the end of these episodes to maybe address uh, a couple questions that we think are worth uh, really talking about. That right. would be a great right. thing. So feel free to send your questions yep. to us. Yeah. Um, now, we're going to have to do it for now. It's uh, it's late. And this is a work night. Mm-hmm. So do you uh, do you actually think I mean, this is a question that I've been playing with in my mm-hmm. mind for since we've announced this kind of uh, schedule? Do you think we'll actually get a ske- uh, another episode out in a couple of weeks, uh, two oh, weeks? Sure. More or less. Remember, I keep saying more or less. So two weeks it is. You're a demon for the work. Uh, I know that you love it. More or less. In the meantime, we would like to hear about the sorts of things you're hoping to learn about Ale Saga. Um, what kind of questions do you have about the section we've just covered, chapters one through mm-hmm. six? What do you think of the people that we've met so far, if you can keep track right. of all of them? Is Kveldolf a werewolf, or is it just a nasty rumor started by the neighborhood busybodies? What kind of king is Harold turning out to be? Do you like him? Do you hate him? Well, I mean, he's a successful one, you have to say that. That's the most important thing about kings. You can reach us on Facebook, where we are Saga Think Podcast, or on Twitter, at Saga Think Pod. Or please reach out to us for a more extended conversation at our email address, sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, or you can send around an arrow of war with a message written in tiny letters on the shaft. We don't get enough arrows of war sent to us these days, Andy. Why does it have to be an arrow of war? Couldn't it just be like an arrow of questioning? <laughs> That's more of a quarrel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, send us your quarrel of questioning. Ah, alliteration. Finally. There you go. All right. That'll do it for us. We'll be back soon with another installment of Ale Saga. Until then, thanks for listening. Bye for now. You're always so clever and so cute with these (laughs) things.